welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Check the Mark. I am Mark Lucero. I have a great episode for you today, so thanks for joining me. Barry Buss joins me later. He's an author of a new book called You Can Get There From Here. It's really his life story. It's his journey through tennis, his journey through undiagnosed mental health issues, his journey through drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and his quest for sobriety. And as he'll tell us later, he's 10 years sober and he is just doing great. And kudos to him for putting this all on paper and getting it out there and sharing it with a lot of people. And like you hear from a lot of people who do this sort of thing, if it can help one person, which I am fairly certain he's going to help a lot of people, then it'll totally be worth it. Putting it all out there, getting that message out there that, yeah, you need to seek help and that you can get through it and that you can get there from here as the title says. All that being said, I'm in Cabo this week. There's a men's event here in Cabo. It's actually one of the best tournaments on tour. It's run by the same team that operates the Acapulco event. And they do, like I said, they do an awesome job. We're right here on the beach. There's a tennis facility they built about a five minute car ride from the hotel. Conditions here are hot. Air temperature all week has been kind of hovering between 88 and maybe 95 degrees. What it feels like, it feels closer to 100 to 110 than when you get on the court and the sun's radiating off the cement. It's even hotter. But they don't start play until 6 p.m. most days. So that's actually really nice for the players. By the time you get out there, especially if you're playing the second match and it's dark, conditions are pretty nice. Air temperature is usually around 84, 85 degrees at that point. And the humidity still up there, but not as oppressive as it is during the day. The courts here are pretty gritty as they are in Acapulco. They're not the slowest courts on tour, in my opinion, but they're gritty. What helps with that, I think, and what makes the tennis more appealing and more uh, appetizing, I guess, is the ball. They're using a Wilson US Open ball here. I like that ball a lot better. It doesn't fluff up quite as much as maybe the Dunlop Tour ball that a lot of the ATP events end up using week in, week out. And it's also good to have some continuity with the ball that you're going to be using at the U.S. Open. In the past this week, Cabo, I think, maybe switched around. Like I said, they used Dunlop in the past. In the past, this week was always one of those weird weeks because D.C. and San Jose had deals with Penn, used the Penn ball, actually on both sides, on the men and women's side. Especially in the women's side, that red Penn ball is just horrendous. The regular duty, it's not horrendous, it's just really light and it's difficult to control. Last thing about the courts in Cabo, they're very bouncy. We're seeing kick serves bouncing over guys' heads, guys who stand 6'2", 6'3". Kick serves are up over their heads, so that's one thing to keep an eye on. A good heavy forehand also up the line is bouncing up and away from the opponent. Like I said, this week there's also an event in D.C. Men and women are both playing there. There's also a women's event in San Jose. The conditions in D.C., just look absolutely brutal for everyone I talk to. The difference there is they play during the day. There's daytime matches because there's a day session and there's a night session there. Like I said, here in Cabo, matches start at 6 p.m. In D.C., it's a huge advantage if you're one of the top players and you're getting scheduled at night because you're not putting your body out there in the middle of the day when you know we've seen fans really struggling out there, not to mention, obviously, the players who are running out there side to side. And even I saw a clip earlier today of a ball kid, I think, in Lexington, Kentucky, who was really struggling out there. San Jose is probably the best place to be this week. Nice and mild up there in the Bay Area, warm, really strong field for that women's event there. And it's done a really nice job of building at San Jose State since they had to move from Stanford. That event was held at Stanford for a very, very long time. 
This is all kind of a preamble for the two big Masters series this summer. Next week, both tours head to Canada. Men go to Montreal. Women go to Toronto. They flip-flop every year. And then everyone will reconvene in Cincinnati, which is actually one of the coolest events on tour and has been in the news because Ben Navarro recently completed the deal from what we all understand to purchase that event. Ben Navarro, obviously the father of Emma Navarro. Ben Navarro really has invested in tennis in the Charleston area and has beefed up that event quite significantly in, in the past few years, really doing a nice redevelopment job to the stadium, fleshing out a brand new players area. I think I talked to it on one of my other episodes. I think when the Shelby was on here, we talked about the investment and the improvements to that site. So always good news when people like Ben Navarro get involved and get more involved in the game. There was a really... I think, ambitious group of people that were vying to buy that sanction that the USTA was selling. So I think it was going to be a win-win for the game, no matter who purchased it. And big shout out to Ben Navarro again for continuing to invest in the game. Before we get to the interview with Barry, I want to talk a little bit more about this Cabo event. If you haven't been to the Acapulco tournament or this Cabo event, I would highly suggest attending one of these events in the future, particularly if you're in Southern California, it's just an easy flight, as you know, I'm sure, to Cabo San Lucas, about an hour 40, hour 45 from LA. You get down here, and these events are fantastic. They use a lot of the same vendors, and there's a party during the matches, and there's a party after the matches. Last night, I was walking around the grounds around 12.20. I put a video on my Instagram story. 12.20 a.m., the doubles match, the last doubles match had just ended, and a band was just going on the stage. They had DJs play most of the night when the tennis was happening with the music relatively turned down so it wouldn't carry on to the courts. But once the last match ended, band took the stage. They were doing collective soul cover when I was walking through looking for food. But the party was just beginning, and I'm pretty confident that they went at least till 2 in the morning because I left at 1.15. The band was still playing. The food was unbelievable. There were tacos out there, shrimp tacos, fish tacos, whatever you want, pizza, salads. There was sushi out there. There were bars all over the place. There were a ton of vendors. Caliente, which is a, a huge casino and sports group in Mexico, had a setup there. There, you know, skincare, techno gym, sports stuff, all, all over the place, all kinds of vendors there. And the people were just having a good time. And, and the same thing happens in Acapulco. The parties go all night, and any player who will tell you, because the hotel was right next to the courts, they've recently built a new stadium in Acapulco, but the hotel is right next to the courts, and you could hear the party, you could hear the music all night long. Here it's a little different because we're situated, I think, five minutes away. But the fan experience is like no other. It's almost like if you, if you take the Indian Wells champagne tent and the food court where the Bryan Brothers Band usually plays, if you transported that to another event, a little smaller scale, but then all of a sudden turn the clock back a few more hours later in the day, later in the night. That's what you get here in Mexico. It's just, it's so fun. The Mexican crowds love their tennis. They love to get behind the players. They love supporting, you know, the Aussies, the American guys, pretty much anyone who's out there battling. And if you're behind, this crowd's going to get behind you and try to pull you back in the match because they want to see more tennis. Probably helps those fans too. I saw them carrying these buckets, not cups, buckets, the largest beers that maybe I've ever seen in my life. You saw a bunch of those in the stands too. A couple of times umpire had to tell people to quiet down or to take it easy back there, but better to have that than no noise, my opinion. Tennis players can 
toughen up a little bit. All right, I want to get to Barry Buss after the break. All right, I'd like to welcome Barry Buss to the show. Barry has a new book out called You Can Get There From Here. Barry is a former tennis player, one of the best junior players in the country. He played at the top of the lineup for UCLA and was one of the best collegiate players in the country and probably one of the best pro prospects in the United States before it all kind of went sideways, and that's what he gets into in his book. Barry, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me on. So your book, you know, I reached out to you right after I read it during Wimbledon. Your life story was incredible. You know, it's a story about, about tennis, about family and relationships, you know, mental health, substance abuse and addiction, resilience, ultimately a story about the human condition. Yes, all, all the above. <laughs> and it, it can get complicated. So how was it for you writing this book? Was it a cathartic experience? Was it something that was, was, was it difficult to write or was it all kind of in there and, and you just needed kind of an avenue to sort of put it on paper? But just a little bit of the backstory on it. You know, I wrote a book, um, you know, obviously I've been, you know, I'm 10 years sober now. So it had a long stretch there. I really struggled. And during my, just my early sobriety about 10 years ago, I wrote my first, I wrote a memoir and I, and I rushed right through in about 30 days. And it was kind of, you know, the book suffered as, as books do that, that are written in 30 days. But I, and I always wanted to come back to the material, you know, as I hopefully evolved as a writer and had more and more sobriety and more maturity uh, to the craft. And, and eventually about a couple of years ago, I saw, I saw the kind of, you know, I was, I had done well, I'd had a bunch of years of sobriety. I was looking at a 10 year, uh, anniversary coming up. So I thought, well, gosh, you know, I'd really like to go back and redo this and, and then finish the story. Cause there was other material that I didn't include in it in the first time. So to say it was cathartic. Yeah. It, you know, it's challenging. I mean, you're reliving every really challenging moment of your, of your childhood and, and adulthood and stuff. So yeah, parts of it were very difficult, but at the same time, you, know, you get a, you know, you get a better understanding at, at situations you may have, you know, I may have painted, uh, bring a little gray to things that maybe I, I had painted a little bit black and white uh, over the years and stuff. But uh, so, yeah, I know it was certainly it was quite liberating to get it out of me. And, uh, you know, and the fact that I may have to speak about it a lot now, too, is, uh, you know, it's, it's it has its moments. But, yeah, it's been it's been pretty cathartic more, you know, to, in, a, in summary. Well, your, your writing style is very is in conversational in a way that it feels like you're telling the reader your story like you were sitting in the room and in that way it's, it's really relatable particularly as you get in to you know the, the tennis experiences the junior tennis especially the stuff that's you know familiar to some of us from southern california but as you kind of elaborate onto the national scene and college tennis it's just the, the descriptions are so are so tangible they're so easy to grab onto and and that part it is really, really enjoyable to read. I mean, it's all enjoyable to read, but especially those parts when you talk really about the, the nuts and the bolts of how the tennis scene works. Well, no, thank you very much. You know, I, I, the irony of how I even got into this this whole scene, I don't know if you remember some years back where the, the, the Wayne Bryan uh, internet letter, you know, across <laughs> right. the world. Were, but, you know, and that's kind of, that started that whole conversation about, you know, about obviously about American tennis and we were, you know, obviously we hadn't had a grand slam champion since Roddick and, and were we spending all our money in all the wrong places and, and, you know, in the USTA center and all that stuff. And, and through the whole conversation, there was all, you know, it was all the ex-professionals and, and, and the parents and the coaches and the organizations were all talking. It's like, gosh, you know, nobody, has anybody ever thought of asking the kids what it's like out there? You know, because it, it, it just seemed to be the missing part of this. And Agassi had gone into quite a bit of that himself, you know, in, in his book, and, and was very confessional about how challenging the, you know, being a having an overbearing parent was, and that so forth, like that. But, but you know, obviously he 
transcended that and, and became, you know, a superstar. Whereas uh, there's an awful lot of players out there like myself who had a lot of game and had, you know, were kind of on the cusp of, of breaking out and didn't make it for whatever reasons. And uh, so, you know, I was, I just, yeah, I was very fortunate to have grown up during the tennis boom and have been in the right place in Southern California in the late, you know, late seventies, early eighties and Lansdorp and Sampras and all the, you know, the, 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 the energy that Southern California had back then. So I just really was able to, you know, honestly and articulate what it's like, you know, to be a young person under that much stress all the time. And because I don't think that really gets talked about enough, um, you know, in our sport and stuff, you know, we're putting we're putting very emotionally undeveloped, very immature kids into very, very stressful environments for extended periods of time and without even thinking twice about, you know, the, if there's any downside to that or not. And, uh, and there is, you know, and my story is extreme in many ways, but uh, a lot of, a lot of players that I grew up with and, you know, and have coached and as an adult, you know, have really, really struggled in their transitions from tennis into, into adult life and, and, uh, you know, and second careers and so forth. Well, I want to touch on that. So, you know, the old school, kind of mentality is you know, competition makes you tough and competition, the cream rises to the top. But the, the more and more that I talk to people around the game and people who have achieved at, at really high levels, they talk about how competition for them was gut-wrenching and for how competition for them just, you know, turned them inside out and put them into knots. And, and that's a lot about a lot of what you talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very cute. My mom, of all people, just is starting to read my book and, she, you know, I was a little <laughs> nervous, you know kind of talking about my family stuff, but she, she actually really liked it. And she goes, but I don't, I don't get it. You, you know, it seemed like you really enjoyed playing those tournaments. I'm like, well, yeah, mom, I, I mean, I enjoyed, you know, winning and I enjoyed, you know, I, you know making friends out there and the, and the whole life that, you know, it's a really unique way to grow up and to be able to travel and have all these experiences as a, as a teen, as a, even a preteen. But uh, my God, it, you know, it was just, it's, it was gut wrenching out there. You're constantly, you know, you're not just playing, you know, you're playing, you know, not just for your, against your opponent across the net, but you're playing for the approval of your parents and you're playing for, for, for gear and you're playing for rankings and, you know, and, and it's so, you just, you're not, you're not emotionally evolved enough to, to have any kind of a healthier perspective. I think as adults, we, we see, you know, gosh, you know, pull back a little bit. You should be, you know, the gratitude and just the challenges and, and, the, and the life lessons that can come from this. But, you, you know, when you're in it, you know, and this is the only environment, you know, you just don't see, you just can't see that, you know, you have to almost be, you know, get some distance from it before you can see the, the, the healthy part of it. So, yeah, no, as young kids, I mean, it's tough, you know, and I try to, you know, as a coach now, I mean, I try to, 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 to channel my kids into a much longer, you know, longer perspective. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Let's look, you know, what you do at 12 or 13 really doesn't matter. I can prove it to you, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just, it's just hard when you're in it to, to see it that way, you know, cause you're too consumed by it. Yeah, do you think that you know that rat race of junior tennis and and the next levels as people try to transition to you know to high level college and to pro tennis? Do you think it's like this perfect storm for mental health issues arising, or is it the pre existing stuff that is exacerbated by this environment? It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? Right, right. So I I think you know I think if there's any real I mean, there's several takeaways from my book that I was able to kind of flash on as I as I played and continue to play through adulthood when I was struggling with my addictions and other stuff um, I, you know if you have underlying conditions a tennis court and a tennis tournament and sustained competition is not going to make things better and and whether you know whether it's girls with eating disorders or guys with you know behavioral disorders uh, or whatever mood disorders are going on 
it, it, that is not, you know, putting people who are, are a little bit fragile under sustained stress like that over extended periods of time does not end well. It just doesn't. And, uh, you know, maybe some are able to overcome it during stretches. And even myself, you know, I, I was able to win or have a good good runs in there in spite of myself, you know, um, you know and all the stuff I had going on. Um, so, yeah, so that's something to be cautious about. And this is, you know, I think a lot of my story here is, is a cautionary tale in many ways. You know, I mean, back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, nobody nobody knew anything. So I give a full pass to, you know, my family and the USDA and UCLA. Nobody had any clue. I mean, I didn't know anything about sobriety. I certainly didn't know a, a, a sober person, certainly anybody with bipolar disorder with, that would, you know, that was, you know, even talking about it. So so there was a, just a big darkness back then that we just didn't know you know and parents didn't know nobody really knew what was what was going on certainly i didn't know um so the real challenge for us now and in 2022 is you know if i roll into town today with all that same stuff going on a talented beget troubled teen with a family thing going on and kind of some behaviors are the safeguards in place for kids like me today you know have you know who can can they get the help they need before they you know they kind of derail their you know, their young life and, you know, and get themselves in a lot of trouble and, and, you know, have all the problems that go along with that. So, so that's really, I think the the thing I'm trying to stress here is that, you know, listen, not every, my story, again, is pretty extreme and, and the kind of a perfect storm of, of, you know, bad things that happened to me, but you know, there's a lot of other kids out there that are struggling with that. And we have to be careful, you know, in all of these, you know, I always use the analogy, you know, if you move to a new neighborhood, or a new town or something like that, you're going to check out everything, right? You're going to check out the schools, the economy, the, 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 you know, the crime situations, all the different aspects of a new area before you put your family into that. So with junior tennis, you know, I think we just need to have a little bit more of a conversation about what is po- what can possibly happen here. You know, this, what, is, what is it like to put an 11, 12-year-old kid on a tennis court by himself for six, seven, eight hours on a Saturday and do it again on a Sunday? Is that good for you know, long-term emotional development? of a person. And I, and the jury's out on this. Some kids transcend that really well and turn on to be, you know, phenomenal tennis players and, and people too, and others struggle and fall off. And as, as ambassadors of our sport, you know, and wanting to move forward within the healthiest of ways for our sport, these are just conversations I think we need to be having, um, you know, as much as we can. I think. I, I think one of the other things, along with all those things you said about the time investment on a Saturday, the time investment on a Sunday, it's also the way that the rest of the family's lives those days revolve around that one kid who's pretty good at tennis right you know and i and i always felt bad for you know because my father got very very you know very had a lot of ocd and him and my tennis became the focal point of our of our family you know in the meantime i had two brothers i had an older brother and a younger brother who were just as worthy of his love and attention and 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 you know and, and grooming to whatever talents that they had, you know, and stuff. But in the meantime, I'm literally off playing, you know, every, every weekend, you know, and if not, you know, and in the summertime you're traveling and, you know, and dad was, you know, it was, you know, just the chain of command at home. It's like, okay, who, you know, we're going to, who's taking them this weekend? Are we spending the night? How are we going to get the other boys around? And, and, you know, it does, it does a lot. So, it, you know, in a way everyone's got a role in this thing. And, uh, you know, I feel, you know, in a lot of ways, my brothers, you know, had a lot of resentment, towards me because, you know, by the time I got on the cusp of really breaking through, you know, I, things fell, fell apart pretty badly. It's like, oh, God, we, we put up with all of this for that. This is what you're choosing to do with your life, you know. So, you know, there's been a long simmering resentment there that, you know, their childhoods were affected, you know, dramatically by, you know, my parents focusing on my tennis and then me not following through on it. So, yeah, no, it, it definitely, you know, as you said, you know, they're the resources, not just financially and so forth, but just the time 
energy and, and you know and the only return on that investment is our victories you know it's winning you know if you don't if you're not winning we're not going to keep pursuing that so that just adds to the pressure cooker of you know of that of that experience there were so many times in your book reading it and, and listening to you it felt like i was listening to you you know retell the story that i found myself rooting for you there were like times <laughs> when you were so close to either getting the help you needed or so close where you had kind of gotten your act together and you were on the verge of keeping it together. Like you just you draw the reader in, and I was like, "Oh man, come on! Right, you're right here. You're right there." <laughs> well, you know, and that's and the challenge of all of this. You know, not to not to give a spoiler on the book here. You know, I did finally get diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 37. You know, and I'd already you know, and I was far. I mean, I was recklessly self-medicating since you know since I was 14. So so you're talking almost a quarter of a century of just trying to somehow manage this without even knowing you know it was like i had to give you now the analogy i used i was playing you know it's like being sat at a card table and i'm you know i'm betting on my hand with my cards flipped over i can't even see what they are but i because i did, didn't know what i was dealing with i didn't know what was driving the all the up and downs of my behavior and my moods and so forth so yeah so it was you know it would, would have been nice if i could have you know if i could have figured this out earlier and there were some moments listen there were a lot of times i remember going to the doctor at 20 years old at ucla and the doc that the lady i spoke to she she knew but she couldn't say anything to me so she gave me a phone number to call and you know unfortunately i never called it i just got off the phone with greg Patton, who was my college coach at irvine and he he actually after a blow up on a challenge match he walked me down to the school psychologist said you need to talk to this, talk to this guy right now because we're not going to be able to, we're not going to put up with this for a whole season so so there were people there in place that were trying to get me the help i needed that you know that maybe could have kept me from you know a lot of the hardships i went through and stuff but uh yeah no i well i appreciate the you know the root me on there i mean i was you know we would been <laughs> you know it's interesting one I, I get asked a lot too you know like god do you still care you know because i kind of flamed out at 18 more or less you know right right after that ucla season and you know do you feel bad that you weren't able to see your skills all the way through and i said you know of course you know i mean that 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 goes without saying but you know in retrospect it's kind of amazing i did as well as i did considering all i had going on at the same time yeah that's something i wanted to touch on what's your relationship with tennis now particularly like pro tennis can you watch it as a casual observer, do you watch it yeah. with the eye of someone who's done what you've done and be like, man, I would play this guy that way? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. When I, you know, I got to know you a few years ago, I was doing a lot of the tennis journalism. Yeah. And so, no, I, listen, I, it's been, you know, it's been the soundtrack of my life. And, and you know, I, I think I say in the, in the, early in the book, you know, I played a first time and a second time and now it's been a lifetime. So it's always my love and my passion. You know, I burned on it a little bit just the last couple of years because when you're doing the journalism, you're engaging with it constantly all day every day so it's a little bit much but no no listen i i, I enjoy it immensely um I, I just did a um you know i think one of the reasons i'm having a healthier relationship to it now is i haven't played a match this year or last year or the year before i'm just not going to go into that space where it can get a little complicated for me but no no i still listen i love the just the the beauty of the game how it's grown in my lifetime watching the just the amazing athleticism of these guys and the competitiveness and this and this sacrifice and then just how just spectacular these guys are and to watch no no I, I mean i still get just such so much enjoyment just the beauty and the art of it you know i'm not as much of a fan anymore as i used to be but more more of an analyst and just a just an appreciative of the sport you know writ large well there's been great buzz about your book you know on the kind of the circles that i move in like inside the game how's the reception been to you you know it's been wonderful it has been incredibly wonderful it's always a I'll never forget when I, you know, I got the 
first bet, you know, the books came and I'm like, oh gosh. And the first people bought them and they were reading and I'm like, yeah, I'm just sitting there. I could barely sleep just waiting for that first review or that first feedback to come back. Cause you know, I put myself out there pretty, yeah. pretty significant on this and you just never know how it's going to come back. And I'm always been, I've always been kind of my worst critic. I, I would tell the story, you know, I was, when I was writing it, I wouldn't let my wife read it. You know, I would just, she wanted, she wanted me to read her some of it. I was like, no, no, I'm not done yet. You know? And, uh, and then finally, you know, I, I read a chapter back and I said, gosh, you know, so I'd go in and read it. I go, Hey, Twilight, you know, this might actually be pretty good. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how I'm doing this, but it's just coming out. Okay. You know, and, and I'm, I'm surprising myself here. So the reception has been phenomenal. I mean, I, I can't stress enough how just, uh, I mean, and literally every day I get, you know, several lengthy letters about people, you know, saying, I just, I'm telling their story, you know, and, uh, and how important it is to see someone be able to communicate, kind of take my personal experience and make it universal. So, no, it's been wonderful. I've got, you know, a lot of important things happening now. I think I mentioned before to you, it's been optioned for a book and a possible movie. That's so awesome, so, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's super exciting. So it's a whole new world. And then uh, I mentioned before the you know, incoming president of the USTA, Brian Hainline, has reached out to me. So we're going to be hopefully talking about some possible collaborations uh, in this space where maybe, you know, maybe I could be the person I needed, you know, when I was uh, growing up. I never had that mentor that I could go to with my, you know, with what was going on with me. I would just love to be able to be that, play that role for upcoming kids and families that are struggling trying to get this, you know, as right as, as right as we can, you know? So yeah, no, it's been wonderful. And, uh, you know, it's still early in the game. And I mentioned before writing a book is very hard. Selling one is equally hard. Uh, promoting one is hard. And now obviously we're going to try to make a television series out of this. So it's just a new challenge and, uh, we're just, we're real, you know, it's taking a day to day and it's been super, super exciting. So for people that want to get your book, where can they find it? How can they find you uh, to, to interact via, I don't know if you do socials much anymore, but how can people track you down? Well, the simplest way, it, it, it's available on Amazon. Uh, just you know, the, just basic ordering there. You can get there from you can you can get there from here, Barry Bus. And if you want a signed copy, uh, you can reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, my my messages are open, and I can uh, mail one out to somebody, and uh, we'll just do the Venmo thing that way. So yeah, but, but primarily Amazon, and then I've got copies myself, and I'll be doing a lot of speaking stuff in the next couple months. Here, we have got a bunch of cool things lined up, and. Uh, you know, we should be pretty, uh, pretty public here with all this. That's great, man. I hope you move some more books real quick before we go. Tell me about your pickleball game. <laughs> so I was, I, I, well, my pickleball game, I wish five years ago, I would have listened to all my friends who were telling me, Hey, you got to get into pickleball. Cause I was <laughs> one of those, you know, staunch, you know, traditionalists like, ah, nah, nah, nah. Uh, I love it. I've got a Monday night group. Now I play with over at Bellmead country club here. We've got 16 guys that go at it hardcore. It's super fun. Um, family tennis is a little, little tough, but we started doing family pickleball. We got a court at our new apartment here and it's awesome. And we have just, you know, every Sunday we got 1030 to 1230 all booked up. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you got to get low. So my hip doesn't, doesn't appreciate it sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, right now it's been a, we're having a great, great time. It's a great workout and really fun. You chop these guys up on Monday night. You know, I, I, I yeah, I did. Okay. You know, that's the tennis skills transfer pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I've got to be honest. Having having some old school volley skills uh, definitely goes a long way. If you can handle yourself at the net, you're going to do okay. Yes, bad volley technique shows up when you have a paddle and a and a wiffle ball right there. Yeah, your technique is using the word loosely. Yeah, there's something going on out there. But yeah, no, being able to carve a few off goes a long way. Well, Barry, thank you so much for your time. I, I know you're busy. I wish you the best of luck moving some copies of this book. I I loved it. I'm going to tell continue to tell people about it and, and best of luck, you know, with the option moving forward for however they produce it for the 
film or for the TV screen. And I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your story. Uh, I appreciate you, Mark. Thank you so much for the support. That's it for today. Big thanks to Barry Buss for coming on. I highly suggest you go on Amazon and get that book. Do yourself a favor and get the book. It's a few hundred pages. It's a quick read. It's happy. It's sad. It's inspiring. It's heartbreaking. And I'm, I'm just happy that he put it all out there. Some of the stuff, some of his experiences, the things he's been through, it's absolutely incredible. And he's living proof that you can come out the other side. Anytime that someone puts themselves out there in that way, obviously there's an element of vulnerability like you kind of talked about. But to put yourself out there like that, you become a model and an example for other people that are maybe just encountering those problems or the people that have been battling them unsuccessfully for a very long time. And sometimes you need that proof. You need that example. Barry also mentioned Dr. Brian Hainline earlier. Dr. Hainline, former chief medical officer of the USTA, former chief medical officer of the NCAA. I love the move, love the fact that he's reached out to Barry to be involved and to make things better for the kids that are coming. There's just a lot of kids that struggle with what tennis is putting them through and not everybody is equipped to really handle it in a good way. All that being said, I'm gonna leave this there. Check out Barry's book, like I said, you can get there from here. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, at Mark Lucero. Let's get some stuff going. Big summer coming up. The two Masters Series, Canada, Cincy, US Open qualities for some. The other tour players will either take a week off or they will go to Winston-Salem for the men. There's a new event in Canada for the women. I believe that used to be the Quebec City Week is now Granby. And Tennis in the Land over in Cleveland, Sam Duvall's event. Really cool event going on there. Subscribe, rate, and review, please. Tell a friend to check the bark. That's it. I am out.